Come, Lord Jesus, Defender, Redeemer, and Judge. Shalom! Thank you for joining us for the Sermon of Sunday, November 28th, 2021 from Christchurch, Jerusalem. During this first week of Advent, the beginning of the Church's liturgical year, Rev. Aaron Imey turns our focus towards the return of the Messiah. The coming of the Lord brings both redemption and judgment, a time where everything hidden in darkness will be revealed by the light of God. Jesus and the prophets depict a world in chaos at the end of time, and the day of the Lord can look terrifying for some, but be an obsession for others. Jesus admonishes us not to be burdened by fear nor weighed down by the anxieties of the world. Instead, we are encouraged to have a posture of hope and confidence. Our response to the return of Jesus is to be vigilant and on guard against the temptations of life. We turn now to the word of the Lord being read. And as we do, let's just stop for a moment and pray. Almighty God, give us grace to cast away the works of darkness and put on the armor of light now in the time of this mortal life in which your Son, Jesus Christ, came to visit us in great humility. That in the last day, when he shall come again in his glorious majesty to judge both the living and the dead, we may rise to the life immortal through him who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. The first reading is from the book of Zechariah, chapter 14. A day of the Lord is coming, Jerusalem when your possessions will be plundered and divided up within your very walls. I will gather all the nations to Jerusalem to fight against it. The city will be captured, the houses ransacked, and the women raped. Half of the city will go into exile, but the rest of the people will not be taken from the city. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as he fights on a day of battle. On that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, east of Jerusalem, and the Mount of Olives will be split in two from east to west, forming a great valley, with half of the mountain moving north and half moving south. You will flee by my mountain valley, for it will extend to Azel. You will flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come, and all the holy ones with him. On that day, there will be neither sunlight nor cold, frosty darkness. It will be a unique day, a day known only to the Lord, with no distinction between day and night. When evening comes, there will be light. On that day, living water will flow out from Jerusalem, half of it east to the Dead Sea and half of it west to the Mediterranean Sea in the summer and in winter. The Lord will be king over the whole earth. On that day, there will be one Lord, and his name, the only name. This is the word of the Lord. The next reading is from 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, beginning to read at verse 9. How can we thank God enough for you in return for all the joy we have in the presence of our God because of you? Night and day we pray most earnestly that we may see you again and supply what is lacking in your faith. 
Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus clear the way for us to come to you. May the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else, just as ours does for you. May he strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. This is the word of the Lord. Our gospel portion is from the gospel according to Luke, chapter 21. It's a tradition to please stand when we hear the words of the king, to acknowledge his kingship and his teaching. The good news, according to Luke. There will be signs in the sun, the moon, and the stars. On the earth, nations will be in anguish and perplexity at the roaring and tossing of the sea. People will faint from terror apprehensive as to what is coming on the world. For the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. And when these things begin to take place, stand up, lift up your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. He told them this parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. When they sprout leaves, you can see for yourselves and know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Initially, a few words to build on what Daryl said this morning as a part of the introduction. We're in a new season of time. You may have noticed that the colors have been changing recently from green and then to white and then to purple. Now, the concept of sacred or the concept of holy time is something that we inherit from the Jewish people. The Jewish people have a very well-crafted calendar, which God has given to them. And they've had some modifications as they've gone through history. So when you read Leviticus 23, you might notice there's a couple of festivals that are not there. Purim's not there. It's added as you go through history to record and uh, to celebrate and remember what happened in the book of Esther. Hanukkah is not there in Leviticus 23. Again, something happened in history as recorded by the books of the Maccabees. And that needs to be celebrated and learned from. And so it's been added to the calendar. And this is something that we inherit. God seems to take time seriously. It's the first thing in the Bible that he calls holy. Every time he makes a day, he says, it's good. Then when he gets to the Sabbath, he says, this, this is special. This is holy. This, uh, This idea of holy time. He's the one that makes seasons. 
and puts the stars in their orbits to make sure that there's a passage of time. And he likes to record events and make sure that his people celebrate them. And so here we are. We are at a season called Advent, which is technically the start of the liturgical year. That is the cyclical reading of Bible. So we've just come out of this long season, which they called ordinary time, the days after Pentecost. And uh, it was a very different types of teachings from Jesus. We learned them. We studied them. Then we came to a special day last week called Christ the King, which was one of the newer festivals added to the calendar. It was added in by the Pope. <gasps> Shock horror. He did it in 1925 because the world, he was looking at the world, and the world was in a bit of panic. It was rising nationalism, militancy, and people were looking to human leaders to solve their problems, and he turned around and said, no, no, no. God is king, not these guys. So we need a special day where all of the priests will go out and preach, God is king. So we still do that. Actually, we should preach every day that God is king. But if not, then at least you have one day where the priest has to do it. Now we come into this season called Advent. It's the liturgical calendar switches. We're now going into the study and, uh, of the book of Luke. And um, it's called Year C, if anybody wanted to know. Um, and it's the season that leads up to the celebration of Christmas. It's actually a time of preparation. It's like a, it's almost like a mini Lent. It even has the same colors, the royal purple. You're meant to, just for a brief moment in time, spend a bit more time in prayer, a bit more time in contemplation before Christmas, perhaps even spend a bit more money on the poor. It's better to give than to receive. Now, Christmas is a great season. Everybody loves Christmas. Even secular people love Christmas. I have yet to find many people, I've found a few unfortunately, who don't love babies. Everybody loves babies. And, and, and the secular world so loves babies so much that they've taken all of our special time for themselves. And now all we think about Christmas, you know, the longing and coming of the Lord, which is what Advent's supposed to be, we're supposed to be preparing and longing for the coming of the Lord, both the one that is celebrated at Christmas, which is the birth of the Messiah, not the birthday of the Messiah, although so many people get those confused. But we're also remembering and preparing, hopefully, for the, the second coming of the Lord. Most of us, unfortunately, right now are just waiting for Christmas sales. That's all the world is currently focused on. They're more focused on Black Friday, Cyber Monday, you know, Taco Tuesday, whatever. Okay, pick, a, pick a something and go for it. But we're supposed to, for a brief moment in time, say, hey, the Messiah came into the world. That's incredible. Let's think about that for a moment. Let's ponder the Im immensity of what that happened. But at the same time, Let's acknowledge that we should also long for his second return. And when we start doing that, things get really interesting. 
And so the season of Advent, four weeks, the first week, you might have noticed from the readings, talk about judgment. We're about to celebrate Christmas. Before we do that, we're going to sit down and contemplate the fact that you and I are going to stand in front of God one day. You ready? We're all silence. <laughs> Usually people don't go, yep, I'm ready. <laughs> Usually it's like, oh, wait a second, maybe, I'll, maybe I might pray just one more time. It's a good season. The, the Advent is, is, is actually quite well crafted. Jesus is coming. Think about it. And so they, they take the teachings of Jesus and they make sure that we study all of his teachings, not just the, our favorite bits. That includes the bits where he talks about the end, which is what we're going to wrestle with today. And then in, in weeks two and three, the, the lectionary changes and makes us focus on the prophets. What's their message about the coming of the Messiah? And John the Baptist, what did he think? And his role in the picture, grand scheme of things. And then my favorite, and I'll tell you why, in four weeks, is uh, the fourth week you talk about Mary. Now, why would we do such a thing? We're not Catholics. That's the reason why. <laughs> you see, I'm really glad they put at least Mary gets one week. Why? Because it says in Luke, and everybody's got this in their Bible, Mary, under the inspiration of the Spirit, says, all nations, all generations are going to call me blessed. Well, do you? Usually you don't think about her at all. And so the, the lectionary said, listen, you know, we don't want to overdo it, but we don't want to, certainly don't want to underdo it. And so we'll give at least one Sunday where we can contemplate what this girl did, how she wrestled with all the tension that was going to come into her life when she was going to willingly become the God-bearer. It's a good, good Sunday. But today, brothers and sisters, judgment. You ready? Yeah, I don't get to do many eternal burn sermons. <laughs> okay? <laughs> but this could be one of them. Anybody here want to repent again? Excellent. Now, whenever we start talking about um, the day of the Lord, it gets a little problematic because <clears throat> either people don't like talking about it because they'll get afraid or people are so obsessed by it, they're nuts. All they talk about is the coming of the Lord. They talk about nothing else. And not only that, it doesn't seem to actually impact their lives, which is exactly what it's meant to do. In fact, Jewish preaching is meant to be practical. It's not meant to be esoteric. It's not meant to be philosophical. It might have some philosophy in it. It might have nice stories and jokes. But at the end of the day, it's got to go away with, and now you do this. Look at the teachings of Jesus. Whenever he did something, at the end, he says, now go and do likewise. Now stop sinning. Now go sell all your stuff. Now be like this. It was very practical. So at the end, uh, it's something that David Plague has always been trying to uh, drill into me, is make sure you say something practical, Aaron. 
And we'll wrestle with that together. How do we, how do we handle the coming of the Lord in a very practical way? And uh, you might notice that the colors change. Um, in the seasons of the world, colors change. And this is just one way of reflecting that we're in a new season. That's all. In fact, in the, in the ancient Jewish world, you worshipped God with all of your senses, all, all of them. You worshipped God with your sight. So things changed. Colors were different. Images were, images were around. Look at the temple and the tabernacle. There were pictures. Now it seems a bit strange. Go to an ancient synagogue and what do you see on the floor? Pictures. Very colorful. They worshipped God with taste. When you, when, you, when you went to worship the Lord, it was a meal occasion. You either brought an animal or you brought grain, most, most, mostly, because that was the, the cheapest thing you, you could afford, as well as singing and hearing and, 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 and touching and, and praying for people. And so when you come into to the church, we have a whole gambit of worshiping the Lord, including, including taste. Okay, so judgment. Some people are definitely, yes, obsessed with the apocalypse. I don't know if any of you guys are. But it does whatever we do. It does need to change our behavior. The early church lived with an imminent expectation that the Messiah would come. They had an imminent expectation of persecution because they were at an imminent expectation that perhaps this actually might be their last day. And what's happened after several thousand years is we've taken the very healthy fear of the Lord and we've turned him into our best friend, a, um, a therapist, a person who can just listen to all of your concerns and the way you feel and your identity. And instead of helping, he just listens and then says that you're okay. Well, you're not okay. There's a reason why you're talking to him in the first place. We, as a, as a community, we also have to somehow share in that expectation of the soon return of the Lord. It will appear in our prayers. When we come to our intercessions, we will pray, come, Lord Jesus. Do we actually mean that? Because when he comes, he is no longer the, lion, the, the lamb. He is the lion. And he is a different character. No more meek and mild. Now he comes with a sword. And he comes with his armies. And he comes to rule and to reign. Hallelujah. But at the same time, what's going to be my change of behavior? So Jesus, as we see in our passages today, unfortunately the Luke passage, the lectionary missed the, the, the actual destruction of Jerusalem. Just before Jesus starts talking, he describes how um, the city of Jerusalem is, uh, or half of it is largely captured when Jesus is speaking about the end times and the end days, he's got a nice long history from the prophets to talk about. 
And so we read in our prophetic portion, which fits incredibly well from the prophet Zechariah, uh, um, a lot of the biblical prophets included lots of dramatic visions of the end times and uh, the end of days and the final battles, and they all involved Jerusalem. Could be that that's just where they lived. Or it could be that Jerusalem's very important. It certainly was to Protestants about 300 years ago. When we started reading the Bible, we discovered uh, that Jesus wasn't coming back to Paris or to London or Berlin, as nice as those cities might be. Where was Jesus going to come back to? To Jerusalem. And that's the reason why Christ Church is here. Because Protestants appeared in 1500s. We didn't show up until the 1800s. What took us so long? He took a little, we were reading Bible and we discovered, oh my gosh, God has his eye on this city. When King Solomon was building his temple, or the temple, and uh, he stood in front of it and he said, wow, Lord, how can you, the king of the universe, fit inside this box? That's actually what he called it. Then God turns around and says, don't you worry about that, to paraphrase. He says, Literally, my eyes and my heart are always here. Even when this place was desolate, when it was empty, when it was lonely, when it was quiet and just a, a, a den for jackals and foxes, the Lord's eyes were here too. And so when there's this big climactic battle at the end times, it's going to be centered around Jerusalem. And that could be why so that, that the enemy keeps trying to tell us that this city is not important. But it just is. Anyone who's been to the Temple Mountain knows that that's the hottest piece of property on the planet. Okay? It is the end of days for all three monotheistic traditions. Okay? Gog Magog is here. Messiah comes here. In the Revelation, it's Jerusalem. And oddly enough, in Islamic theology, it is too. You scratch your head and you think, why? You've got other famous cities. What's this one? The enemy knows. And the United Nations keeps doing its darndest to tell us that this city is not important. But it is. And so you read in the prophets, and it can get a little scary, the Lord gathers the nations against this city. And that automatically brings up a whole swathe of theological uh, concerns. What do you mean God is bringing nations to do battle? Why does he need to do that? I thought we were supposed to be the Prince of Peace. Why can't you just slay them there? If you don't like San Francisco, Lord, take it out. Just shake it and large portions of it will drop off into the sea. We know that. You don't particularly like Bangladesh? Great. Beijing, take it out. Why do you have to bring them here? He does. The point that you see in the prophets is even though there is a coalition against God, God is still in control. That is a very nice thought indeed. And initially, this coalition against the Lord seems to succeed. Now, that's another interesting piece of theology. 
the enemy goes to fight against God and God's people and seems to win. But you go through history, that seems to be the way, always goes that way. You, uh, you start, the enemies always seem to start doing really well. And uh, when you try and attack and persecute the church, large sections of the household of faith are hurting and have hurt, and they're still hurting and will be hurting tomorrow. Yet, despite intense opposition, has the enemy stopped the gospel from going around the world? No. So he's not that strong. From Jerusalem to Judea to the ends of the earth, yes. But for a brief moment in time, it appears as though the darkness is winning. Why does God allow that to happen? Why does he send his disciples into a boat, into a storm, and then while they're struggling, he just walks right past them? You know, there they are rowing away and say, hey, hell, wow, look at that guy. He completely missed us. Seems a bit distracted. Perhaps there's something that we need to learn in our suffering. I don't know. Paul uses a a cryptic expression where he says, I continue in the sufferings of Jesus. Present tense. Very interesting. Whatever it is, God is in control. However you read it, the prophets say that the enemies will come, but God is in control. And then he fights. Something happens and God comes down. And in the prophets, it's God, the Lord. In our gospel portion, it's the Son of Man, which is the character we see in the book of Daniel. And when the Lord comes, the earth reacts, and it reacts in an incredible way. It shakes. What else can it do? It trembles. The sun and the moon do something different, and, 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 and instead of their light being diminished, a new light comes up, the light of the Lord. And geological features start to appear. Mountains shift and suddenly we've got new valleys and highways. And uh, various images begin to appear. Uh, The Dead Sea once becomes fresh. I mean, we're doing everything we can, or actually we're not doing anything we can to to refill it. (laughs) Okay. And just so everybody knows, this is exactly what happens to salt seas. They all evaporate. Just so you know, that's a completely natural phenomenon. Go anywhere in the world where there was a salt sea, it all evaporates, and then some guy comes along and drives a car really fast on it and breaks land speed records. That's what you do on salt seas. Okay? Okay? Today, we've got this sort of pathological disease that if anything changes, that's bad. As soon as something dares change, we've got to fix it, stop it, replace it, I wouldn't mind it if you filled up the Dead Sea. Why? I like floating there. It's a completely selfish thing. <laughs> it's got nothing to do with geology. But it is interesting that as a, this, this sort of idea of something dead coming back to life, it's a, it's a nice image that the prophets give us. And then the salvation that we see in the prophets, in the sea in Zechariah, God doesn't just save Jerusalem. He saves the world. 
He says he becomes a king over all of those nations. Whatever pretenders came to fight, he now takes his authority over them. That is also incredibly good news. So then Jesus takes his disciples and, uh, and he has a few words to say to them about the end times. He had discussed the destruction of Jerusalem. I'm sure they didn't like to hear that. They were kind of hoping to hear the destruction of Rome. And, um, but Jesus talks about that the, the city will be, will be surrounded, Jerusalem will be surrounded, and that its desolation is near. That's what it says in um, verse 20, uh, the context for our portion today. And we think, okay, so Jerusalem will be uh, as part of the return of the Lord. There are these climactic battles. Things, it's going to hurt a lot of people. And uh, this, this third great temple that we built is going to be destroyed, which, of course, then begs the question, why bother? That's a really good question. <laughs> Perhaps you should probably put your money into building a hospital instead of building something that the man of lawlessness is going to desolate. I would think that that might go a little bit more in line with the good news in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus gives a bunch of signs for people. He says, these are signs that you, that you won't be taken unawares. And what we shouldn't do with these signs is start looking and going, okay, um, the Jews are back in the land. Let me think now, one generation away. Because what we do when, when people become obsessed with the apocalypse is we find absolutely every uh, uh, end of days passage we can find, completely take them out of context and put them all together. And we create the most amazing flowcharts. And, um, and then, we, then we do things like set dates. I don't know when Jesus is coming, but he's coming back on Wednesday at 2 o'clock. Because that's to avoid traffic. Because he's not that dumb, okay? You're pretty smart. We don't know. We don't know when Jesus is coming back. Jesus doesn't know when he's coming back. And we really need to stop doing the whole date setting thing because it gets people jaded about the end times. What we need to do is we need to take the teachings of Jesus seriously. There is going to be a judgment. That's what today is about. The Messiah will come. It might hurt. The world might go pear-shaped. Should we then turn around and, and run in fear and scream out the church? Interestingly, in Orthodox churches, the, uh, there's a, often a picture just over the doorway as you leave, and it's of the last judgment. It's so that after you've come in and worshipped the Lord, and by the way, in Orthodox churches, they don't have chairs. They don't have chairs. Ain kisot. Well, ain there's no, there are no chairs in Orthodox churches. Why not? Well, there's no, church, there's no chairs in the temple. They're modeling themselves in the pattern. You didn't walk up to the temp, temple and says, Hi, oh, Lord, I've just uh, you know, said 15 psalms of the sent. I'm really tired right now. Uh, I'm going to sit down. And that's, you stand before the Lord. Now, I'm not saying that you should all get up right now and move your chairs away. Our tradition is we have chairs. It's a nice tradition, yes? Not in the Bible, just so you know. <laughs> I like them. I've been sitting on one. It's got a cushion. 
Also that not in the Bible. But uh, stand before the Lord, worship the Lord, and then when you're finished, turn around and as you look up, as you leave, you go, oh, yeah, the judgment's coming. How now should I behave? And Jesus is going to give us some hints. Jesus describes Jerusalem being destroyed. Nothing you can do about it. This is not a prophecy with a warning. A lot of the prophets say the Babylonians are coming, so repent. And then they won't come. But this one is, this is going to happen. God will come and he will judge the world. And judgment starts with the household of faith. Who's going to get judged first? We will. Interestingly, in Jewish tradition, you can see on the Mount of Olives, there's lots of graves. The whole side of the mountain's full of graves. And you go, why did they put them there? Because in the belief that in Jewish tradition, when you, when you rise from the dead, you rise from where you're buried. And so if you're buried in America, then you have to get your own way here. Because God's going to bring everybody to the, yeah. And it's, a, it's either a long swim or an expensive plane ride, or depending on your corona test, okay, you might be stuck for a few while. So you can't come right now as I didn't have my green pass expired. I've been dead for so long, you know. But, uh, and so for, so for Jewish people, they want, to be, they want to be first in judgment. Judgment starts at the household of faith. So that's where they are. They're ready for, for judgment. Like, wow, it's pretty, pretty cool. Or they want to be sure of themselves, I'm sure. But when Jesus comes, he's going to take a look at us. He's going to take a look at what we've done. He's going to take, and we're going to have to give an account of everything that we have done and everything we have not done, which is just as bad. That's why I really appreciate in our, in our um, repentance prayer at the start, standing before a holy God and we say, Lord, forgive me for the things that I didn't do. I knew I should have done it, but I was too scared. I was too lazy. I, I, I thought I didn't have enough money to help or whatever, but there's all the good I didn't do, and I'm really sorry for that. So I can't take it back. We have to account for that as well. And so here we are, the Messiah's coming back. The world looks like it's going to be in all kinds of problems. There's shaking in the heavens, and people are afraid. The world is afraid, and it's still afraid. It's very afraid. It's always afraid. And it's running out of hope. And what do we have to give it? We have hope. We have light. We have light. And yes, we have a redeemer, a savior who defeats death and cancels out sin. We have that. But at the same time, we also have a judge. And when he comes, he will begin with us. And when we see the Son of Man coming with a cloud, Jesus tells us, look up, have a good posture, don't be afraid. Your redemption is drawing near. Hold your head up, time to smile, have hope, shine your light in a dark world. It needs it like never before. Jesus tells us, that we need to be strong to escape what is coming. 
He says in verse 34, Be careful, or your hearts will be weighed down with carousing and drunkenness. That's captivated our world. And with the carousing of drunkenness and the anxieties of life, this life has so wrapped our world and us that we have become incredibly passive. Jesus will come and fix everything, so I don't have to. Jesus didn't say, sit under a tree and wait for the rapture. I, don't, I didn't, didn't see anywhere of that in Jesus' teaching. That day is drawing close and suddenly like a trap. So live in this, live in this uh, moment of expectancy. Jesus might come today. How should we now live? How should we pray? What should we do with our resources? I have to admit, uh, I think I heard you say this once, Daryl, but as you get older, suddenly money loses its value. <laughs> really is quite incredible. When you're young, it seems like it's really, really important. Probably because you haven't got any, but it's really, really important. But if this was the last day, if this was your last day, then what really should we be doing with our resources? For it will come on all those who live on the face of the earth. So be always on the watch. That doesn't mean make a flowchart, but it means to be alert. It means don't be passive. Don't sit down and just sit around and wait. And pray that you will have the strength to escape. Interesting. And that you'll be able to stand before the Son of Man. He is our Redeemer. He is our friend. He is the silent listener at every conversation. He is the Lord of your hearts, I hope. And if he's not, come and see me at the end. But he is also our judge. And we will have to give an account. So we should study the teachings of Jesus and put them into practice. Do not be passive. Be active. Active in the attitudes of his teaching. Whatever the Messiah has taught us, let us put that into practice. Remember that as the world gets into chaos and it starts to get afraid, we need to make sure that we don't have fear because God is in control. Yes, it's horrible, but don't be afraid. When the world loses its hope, we need to turn around and give that hope that is back. And we need to always remember that despite whatever rules and reigns in this world, Jesus actually is the king. We need to remember what happened yesterday. He rules the world. It is his to save. It is his to redeem. And it is his to judge. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening. If you've been blessed by this teaching, let us know by leaving a comment on our Facebook page, on SoundCloud, or by leaving a review in Apple Podcasts. You can offer practical support by giving a donation at ChristChurchJerusalem.org. Thank you, and blessings from the City of the King.